You're on the Plants Grow Here podcast. I'm Daniel Fuller. Come along with me as we enter a hidden world of deep horticultural, ecological and landscape gardening knowledge with featured experts, industry professionals and enthusiasts. Is a carrot a carrot? I mean, are all vegetables of the same type nutritionally equal or do the growing conditions actually affect the nutritional density held within a plant's flesh? In this episode, we're lucky enough to have on Elizabeth Westaway and Matt Adams from an organisation in the UK called Growing Real Food for Nutrition, aka Griffin. They're going to explain what they're finding out about crops grown in a polyculture with organic gardening and permaculture practices versus monoculture crops grown in poor soil. So guys, thank you so much for coming on the show. You're welcome. Now that's lovely to be here. Thank you for inviting us, Daniel. Yeah, I'm really excited about this. I think that a lot of people are going to learn a lot from this episode, me included, because I've just moved house and I've set up a little veggie garden uh, in one of my courtyards in my unit. And yeah, I'm definitely looking to make the most nutritious veggies and salad crops as I can. So this is really awesome. Thank you. Yeah, that's lovely. Really exciting as well. You've got the opportunity of growing some nutrient-dense veg. Yeah. So can you tell us a little bit about both of your backgrounds, please? If I go first, so I am Dr. Elizabeth Westaway. I'm an international public health nutritionist, and I've worked um, mainly in the global south. One of the positions I held was um, with the Food and Agriculture Organization of the United Nations. Um, So I was based at Rome and overseeing two nutrition-sensitive agriculture projects. So one of those was in Malawi and one was in Cambodia. And uh, basically the the model was to help smallholder farmers diversify crop production so that they would be moving away from monoculture, high import cash crops for export. And the, the pattern had been that they'd be selling all the crops and then they'd have to buy food for household consumption. So this was an attempt at moving away from that. It was also a component of helping, I should say, well, facilitating caregivers of young children in the weaning age to be able to, yeah, produce more nutrient-dense meals for their families. So there's a cooking demonstration element and then empowerment, uh, confidence building and competence around just adding little tiny bits of food, veggies, um, fish, meat, you know, just to diversify that consumption for the small children with the overall aim of trying to reduce stunting levels. So a colleague of mine in Malawi, an American dietitian named Stacia Nordine, who'd been living and working in Malawi for years, she mentioned the word permaculture. And it was in 2016 that I started looking into permaculture, and that's taken me on this very interesting journey, trying to get permaculture, agroecology, and regenerative agriculture into food systems, food and farming systems, so that we're actually growing nutrient-dense food that is nutritious and hopefully reduce the prevalence of diet-related communicable diseases like type 2 diabetes heart disease, particular cancers that are having such a detrimental impact on individuals, their families, society and healthcare systems, particularly in the global south. And at the the root of all of this is 
the need to improve soil health because of the connections between soil health, plant health, food quality, nutrition and health of both people and the planet. So I'll stop there. I'd love to talk about that more in the episode, so I'm really looking forward to learning about that. So, Matt, what about you? What's your history been like? Yeah, quite a checkered history. So I began my working life as a mechanical engineer, so I have a very practical kind of attitude. So I decided to to switch from engineering to actually take up a, a degree. It was around holistic environmental management. So as a mature student, I um, I went to do a degree. And as part of that, I got started to get really interested in ecology. And I took a year out doing that degree. I went and worked for a wildlife trust so that I could just be in nature. And I was doing that to, to, to kind of learn from nature, directly from nature. So I spent nine months working in woodlands and wetlands and grasslands and it was just being out there all day long working in nature so that was a great experience and then following that I did went to the Amazon for three months working as a resident naturalist and guide so I was able to absorb nature in the rainforest which is quite incredible because the amount of energy there just moves things on at a a great pace so the difference between the northern temperate zone and nearer to the equator, it's a different rate of energy, I would describe it as. But the principles are the same. And and so that, that sparked an interest in, in ecology. And then in my final year, I got very interested in environmental politics and philosophy. And I, I started to follow the ideas of deep ecology and this is an environmental philosophy that that suggests the current way that we think and understand our relationship with nature is based on a, a shallow ecology, an understanding of ecology at a very shallow level. Deep ecology, it encourages the individual to ask deep, much deeper questions about our relationship with nature. And in asking deeper questions, the idea is to provoke well, not provoke, but stimulate, to, to stimulate these more difficult, deeper questions in so doing, help to transform the shallow ecology, the, 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 understand, the, the way that people understand ecology at a shallow level. So it's kind of questioning worldviews. I better not go into this too much right now, otherwise I'll be waffling. Well, <laughs> there's a whole episode there. <laughs> so, yeah, we should definitely have a chat about that too. So Okay. So I came out of my degree as a holistic environmental manager. That's what I thought I was. And there were no jobs for people like me. So I had to cut my own path and try and invent my own future. And so to that end, I ended up running a gardening charity that was promoting no-dig compost organic gardening. And they had been doing that since 1966. So I kind of inherited this charitable organization at a time when they were beginning to get very interested in this relationship between soil health and the quality of food, based on an understanding of nutrition, um, that came out of a healthy soil system. 
And then to that end, I ended up doing a partnership project with the Biodynamic Association over eight years. And we were tracking 23 mineral and trace mineral elements in the soil and tracking that through into the crops. And we were looking at the microbiome in the soil to see what the relationship might be. So that went on for eight years. And we were generally asking the question, what is nutrition? It's a big question mark for me. I don't think there's a complete answer out there. So we were asking the question, what is nutrition? And was there even a way of, of measuring it or quantifying it? And after eight years, I think that was a interesting personal learning experience, which took me deeper into this kind of whole relationship between an invisible world of microbes and how they interact with plants and their relationship to animal and human health. So it's just developing, for me at that time, developing the awareness that there is this linkage. And and that sort of brings me to where I am today. But just a couple of extra bits after I, I, I left, the, uh, I sort of moved on from that charity after 11 years to become a craft cider maker. Oh, cool. And that was five, five, yeah, it's very cool because it meant five years of fermenting with natural, natural yeasts. And that's again another deep relationship that I formed with that kind of microbial community. And that made me aware of how ciders can be unique to their local areas based on potentially the microbes that inhabit those lo local areas. And that all comes through in the taste. So you can begin to taste the locality of your local area, mm. which is dictated by the microbes that, that may be present there. So these are all learning experiences. And, 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 and now, 2018, I found out about the development of a bionutrient meter going on in America. And so I um, instantly connected with that idea because it's it's something that I was thinking about sort of 10, 15 years ago when I was doing these investigations into the soil health and nutritional quality of food. So that, that now brought me back to soil. So Elizabeth and I met in, in 2019 and have been sort of collaborating ever since. And now we've ended up setting up the community interest company called Growing Real Food for Nutrition to continue exploring and supporting this idea. Yeah, thank you. So I guess that brings us to the question, what is Griffin? So what do you guys do? Growing Real Food for Nutrition, what does that entail? Right. Well, at the moment, we're doing a number of activities. So around advocating to change the narrative. So to change a couple of different narratives, actually. So one of them is to change the narrative from food quantity based on yield to food quality based on nutrient density. And to also change the narrative from food security to nutrition security to ensure that everyone is eating nutritious food. And I would like to see it that everyone has a right to be eating nutrient dense, you know, 
nutritious food based on nutrient density. So that's part of it. We're sort of focusing on advocacy, education and engagement. And we're just starting a pilot project, which I think, Matthew, would you like to explain the different elements of the project, the citizen science project? Yeah, and and I'd like to just add to what Elizabeth has said, because this touches on the on the ecology and our relationship with nature. And she said that this should be a right that everybody should have access to nutrient-dense food. And when you begin to understand this relationship between creating a healthy ecosystem, the result of that is nutrient-dense food. And we all know that there are big issues going on in the world. And a lot of these issues can be tackled and, 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 and regenerated through better food. So it's almost, it should almost be compulsory that everybody should eat nutrient dense food to make the planet healthy again. So it's a, it's a, it's a sort of poetic story, really. But I think people need to understand what nutrition is before they can begin to demand better food. So Griffin is playing the advocacy role. We have reached an understanding that there is no definition for what food quality is. Currently, the predominant sort of measure is based on yield, which means money. And money is not how the real world works. It works based on the principles of, of ecology and nature. So through, through, or to develop our sort of advocacy, we've, we've kicked off a citizen science project with a number of grower partners from around the United Kingdom, but also in Europe and in the global south. And it's, it's a collection of growers with different backgrounds covering everything from community supported agriculture to permaculture, biodynamics and organics and regenerative growers. So it's the whole sort of range or a good diverse range of growers and what we're asking them to do is to begin measuring quality of the food that they're growing so that we can begin to build more knowledge about, uh, well, so we can assess the quality of the food they're growing, but also begin to educate the growers that it may be possible to measure food quality. So bearing in mind this is a food quality is, has never been defined, we are, our project is designed to begin to ask the questions about what is food quality and we're doing that through simple handheld tools that can measure a crude assessment of nutrient density and to do that there's a very simple technique and it's using a refractometer which is called a, a, a bricks refractometer and it measures the total dissolved solids in, in a juice, in a liquid. So how that works is that you take a sample of food. Let's let's use carrot as an example. So you would take your carrot and cut out a slice, so it's the part you would eat, and you crush it. We've made up a, a crushing device, and you need just two or three drops of juice to land on the lens of the refractometer. You close the lid and then you look through it. And, and if you can imagine a telescope, you're now looking through something a little bit like a telescope, 
But what you're seeing in the viewfinder is a scale, and the scale runs between 0 and 32, and that's the, the BRICS scale, which is B-R-I-X. And so for your carrot, you've put your drops of juice on the lens and you're looking through the telescope and you read off a single numerical value anywhere between 0 and 32. So let's say, for example, it reads 10. So you use that numerical value and cross-reference that with the BRICS tables. And the BRICS tables are a suggested, they suggest four general qualities of food ranging from through poor, average, good, and excellent. And for each fruit or vegetable or, or a few grasses that we've got, we have a, a BRICS range. So the, um, so poor would be anything from zero. Well, let's look at carrots. Anything from zero up to four. So if you only scored a four or less, that would be considered a poor quality carrot. And then you move into average, and that's anywhere between six and 11 and that's considered average and then you move into the good category and that would be 12 to 17 and then you move into the excellent category and then it's 18 and above and hopefully you get the impression that what's happening here is this numerical value increases and as it increases it relates to quality and it's suggested that when a food reaches that excellent quality bricks value you can observe in the plant following things one is the complete resistance to pests and disease two is an increased yield with more uniform growth three is that it will taste better and four is that it will have a much longer shelf life um, well-grown food does not rot it dehydrates so those four metrics are beginning to describe what crop quality or food quality could be and we find those indicators really useful because they are all things that we can relate to at a human level we can all taste food for example and when you taste an excellent carrot which i've never tasted as yet i've tasted good carrots but i've not yet to find an excellent one then you begin to relate your taste to a, this simple measurement and when you taste a poor carrot, it really becomes obvious that there is something going on with the quality of that carrot. Because when a carrot tastes watery or perfumed, it suggests that it's not nutrient dense, which reflects the health of the soil, the environment that that carrot was grown in. So that is my description of the BRICS test, which is one element of our Grower Partners project, is to encourage them to start using this simple tool to begin extracting values. And the second part of the Grower Partners test is to, to do taste testing with three or more of their local community. And so as the Grower Partners become comfortable with testing the quality of the food they're growing, they begin to understand what these values are representing, then the way the taste testing sessions will work is that they can pull a carrot that they've grown, measure it, get a numerical value, and let's say it's a 12. Then they can source another, another carrot, maybe from the supermarket, and test that. And if the score is much lower, let's say a 5 or a 6, you have two very 
clearly defined measurable values. And that's what they use in the taste testing session. So without telling their local community, they just invite them to taste the carrots and tell them which one they prefer the most. And at that point, the conversation, there's a potential to have a conversation. Because if the if the taste tester picks the one with, with the higher value, well, I mean, this is, this is our research. We, we've yet to find this out. But the theory is when the when the, the, the local sort of community start tasting the two carrots, it's an opportunity for questions about why these carrots might taste differently. And it's an opportunity to engage in conversation about this relationship between the healthy soil and quality of the carrot. So I'm building up the picture here. We've got the, the three elements. The first one is the bricks testing. The second one is the taste testing. And then the third element will be to invite our grower partners to send the samples to a real food campaign laboratory. And that's to do with our partners in America who are developing Bionutrient Meter, which is a scanner that uses the science of spectroscopy. And the intention is to create a simple device. It could end up as an app on a mobile phone that, with a flash of light, can tell you whether that carrot contains lots of nutrient or not very many. And in order to do that, they require lots and lots of samples. So each sample that's sent to a real food campaign laboratory, it's analyzed for a range of nutrients, its mineral elements, its proteins, its antioxidants and polyphenols. And each sample that's sent must also be sent with the soil. That soil is tested for mineral elements, microbial life, soil carbon and organic matter so all that detail can be put into a database and tagged to the spectral signature so that's the scanner so each sample that comes in it's scanned to find its unique spectral signature the results from the laboratory testing are tagged to that signature and the database gets filled out with hundreds or thousands of samples of carrots where the values are now known and are all tagged to the spectral signature. And the intention there is, one, to create a database that can, ex that can show the variation that exists in the nutritional quality of carrots, but also a whole list of foods. So that becomes very, very interesting. And the other reason for creating this database is to be able to calibrate an end-user model of the scanner. So I've described uh, quite a lot. I think I might have been talking for quite a while, but that's our Grower Partners project, three elements, bricks testing, taste testing, and real fun food campaign data analysis. So Elizabeth, can you please tell us a little bit about your Grower Partners, please? Yeah, thanks for that question, Daniel. No, it's been really exciting because over the last few months, probably from the end of February, I'd say, Matthew and I have been meeting with well over 50 different growers and farmers, predominantly from around the UK. We were re really wanting to make sure that we had the four nations of the UK represented in our citizen science project. Um, so it started off, it was really like I was getting into contact with people that I'd been meeting over the last few years at different conferences and workshops or, you know, um, through then 
and on Twitter, because I'm quite active on Twitter, you know, people that I knew were potentially interested in looking at nutrient density and in relation to growing food that is nutrient dense for the, for the health benefits that that would incur. So, yeah, just started getting in contact with these people, asked them if they want to be part of a citizen science project and just explaining our link to um, the Bionutrient Food Association in the States and the Real Food Campaign USA, which is setting up this amazing database that Matthew was mentioning and calibrating, developing and calibrating the Bionutrient Scanner, which is, you know, I mean, that's just such an, an incredible project in itself. And you know, just inviting people, if, if all of this sounded interesting, would they like to have a chat on Zoom just to, to talk about it a bit more and see if they wanted to participate? And so we've had some really amazing conversations with people and over this period of a few months have recruited about 20, I'm sorry, about 60. Uh, we've even been talking to people in the Global South and we've got Zach Barton from Nepal, who's doing incredible um, permaculture projects there. We've also been talking to Vijay Talam in India. He's the advisor who's converting six million smallholder farmers to zero budget natural farming. And they're very interested in incorporating BRICS values into their study. We've been speaking with a farmer in South Africa and then recently with people in Kenya. So the Real Food Campaign is a global initiative and we're wanting to try and help spread it. So the database at the moment has a drop-down menu. Just Well, it doesn't have a drop-down menu at the moment. It just has a map of the USA showing the different grower partners linked to the Real Food Campaign USA who contributed crop samples and samples of soil in which those crops were grown in. And what Matthew and I would like to see in the future is a drop-down menu by country um, to start understanding what's going on in our soils. So it would be great if there was you know, a drop-down menu showing the UK and then disaggregated to the four nations. And then at some point in the future, you know, other countries having a place in that drop-down menu. So we've started the conversations with Nepal, India, South Africa and Kenya. And, uh, you know, who knows how it will develop in future. So just returning to the grower partners who are participating in the Citizen Science Project. I mean, it's such a range. We're particularly wanting to get a great diversity. So we've got people who are growing on less than an acre up to over 500 acres and even more. We've just recruited a partner from Serbia, actually, who's doing some great work there. They're using a variety of different growing practices, permaculture, agroecology, regenerative agriculture. We've got biodynamic farmers. We've even got a hydroponics group. Who, who joined this and it's just everybody's so enthusiastic they're just wanting to join us on this journey to learn how to grow the best quality food and this first year as Matthew was explaining it's it's very much just getting familiar with 
the refractometer and then engaging in the taste testing. And then if we get the lab or when we get the lab set up in the UK, then they will be invited to send samples of props that the Real Food Campaign USA are interested in receiving to help with the calibration of the bionutrient meter. And also that will act as a monitoring tool for our grower partners just to, to understand baseline they're working at in terms of the quality of both the soil and their crops that they've, they've sent to the laboratory. So yeah, it's just really exciting. We've also got some restaurants as grower partners because obviously they're very interested in growing the highest quality food for the, mm. the clients coming to the restaurant to eat. And then along with the, the, the nutrient density, you'd have that added flavor you know, to tantalize the taste buds whilst they're enjoying meals of this superior quality food. I'd actually like to ask you a bit of a question and tell me if it's off topic and you'd like to return to saying a little bit more about this before we move on. But I'd like to ask, what advice do you have for someone like me? I'm in an apartment. I have just a couple of courtyards and I get partial sun in them. And I'm looking for pot plants and I want to grow vegetables and salad greens and herbs and stuff like that, just in little raised pots. And um, I've got a little vertical garden. Like what advice do you have for me? What potting mediums should I use? Stuff like that for if I want to grow the most nutritionally dense food. Okay. My advice is to don't make things too complicated and just get on and start growing your crops. Get hold of a BRICS refractometer kit and practice testing the quality of the food that comes out. The reason I'm saying that is because what the test can do is it can provide a feedback as to how well you've grown those crops in those containers. And we've yet to find out ourselves. That's why our project is is now happening. The container system is obviously a modification of the soil system and what i would ask you to bear in mind is that what seems to make the difference between a nutrient dense plant and one that is not is down to the microbes in the soil and in order to maximize diversity and numbers of microbes in the soil you obviously want the healthiest soil that you can so the correlation or the, the preliminary results that are coming back to us from the bionut- from the development of the bionutrient meter is that continuous cover crops and minimum stroke no-till are correlating with the higher densities of food. Now, in a container, you obviously disturb the soil to put it in there in the first place. So... Um, there's a factor there, but I don't want you to worry about that because you need the soil to start with. Obviously, some compost to make sure that there's organic matter in there. So it's a mix. And maybe to not think about just growing a single crop in a container and think about growing multiple crops so that the plants are sharing their communication with the microbes Plants can also share resources with other plants. So what I'm trying to do is make this as simple as possible 
and say, get your container, look for the best quality soil that you can find, add a little bit of compost, that's your base mix, and then look up some companion planting charts and look at what crops might fit together well. Uh, there's plenty of these online. And think about planting a, a diverse a diversity of crops into those co- containers. Now, obviously, you've only got a small container, so it might just be two crops, or maybe you could get three crops. And, and, and that's all I want to say, because I don't want to complicate it, because it's more important that you actually just start growing something. And then if you could begin testing the quality of that food, then that offers you feedback. And at that point, you're a season down the line and you've become comfortable with growing things in a container. You're becoming comfortable with, with using a bricks refractometer. And then you can start to go into more depth. So what I'm really trying to do is just get you to grow food and just start measuring it. Can you please tell me a little bit about the Real Food Campaign report in the US? Yeah, no, there's some great findings have come out from the Real Food Campaign USA. So I just want to tell you how they started in um, 2018, asking the question, is a carrot a carrot? And to explore this, what they did, they actually analysed several hundred carrots and they were looking at antioxidant polyphenol levels and they actually found that the you know predominantly most of the the samples were at the bottom end of antioxidant polyphenol levels there was a few at the top and the difference was 200 times so the better samples had 200 times more antioxidant polyphenol levels than those at the lower end so that definitely answered the question that a carrot is not a carrot there is huge variation. And similarly, in spinach with iron, again, the majority of the samples were at the bottom end, and the difference between the bottom and the top was 14 times. So again, the top spinach samples had 14 times more iron than the bottom. So that was done in 2018. So in 2019, they expanded the range of crops they were interested in looking at to one fruit, which was grapes, and five veg, so carrots, kale, cherry tomatoes, lettuce, and spinach, and invited grower partners from all across the USA to send in samples of those crops and samples of the soil in which they were grown in for um, laboratory analysis. So they also asked them to complete metadata, so such as the variety of the crop, as well as the growing practices, they're starting to try and tell a story here, and it's gradually evolving, um, you know, as as time is moving on, which is really exciting. And as I say, we're we're part of this journey, and we're wanting to invite other people to join us on this journey. So from around 3,000 samples that were analysed, so they're looking at mineral, nutritional content uh, within the soil, carbon, soil organic matter, minerals and soil biology and particularly interested in looking at antioxidant polyphenol levels in relation to growing practices and what they found is very interesting. So as I say this is just the findings that are emerging. So glass house and hydroponics were below the median for antioxidants polyphenols, biodynamic certified were below the median 
That might be because of small sample size. We don't know. That's just what, what the data is telling us at the moment. American organic certified was around the median. And then organic non-certified was above the median. And that's where I'm thinking <laughs> permaculture and agroecology comes in. And the, the highest sample, um, the highest results for antioxidants, polyphenols, were linked to those grown regeneratively with very low or no-till and continuous cover crops. Mm. So it's pointing to showing evidence that regenerative agriculture, agroecology, permaculture are the practices that are giving higher polyphenol antioxidant properties in the plants, which would then lead to health benefits in humans. They also found that nutrient density correlated well with taste and have now subsequently expanded the number of crops out to 21. So we've got many more fruits, we've got more veg, and they're also looking at grains. So that is wheat and oats. And later in the year, they're thinking about expanding it to meat, milk and eggs as well. So this is all really exciting. And why we would like to have a laboratory set up in the UK that can enable our grower partners to send their samples of um, these crops and samples of the soil which they were grown in to add to the database, you know, to then enrich this story and to, to learn much more about um, the linkages between soil health, plant health, well, ecosystem health, food quality, and then how that then affects nutrition and health of people and planet. So it is really exciting. Mm. So I guess we're not just talking about plants here when we're talking about nutrient density, are we? I mean, that nutrient density is going to pass up the food chain when we're eating meats, whether we're eating veggies or whatever, all the way up to us, and it's going to make our bodies more enriched with the nutrients that are in that soil. It's good to, to, to paint this picture clearly because it's just another basic principle of ecology. It's food chain. So what we are looking at is the potential of creating a plant with total health. So I described earlier the, the idea that food quality could be described by a plant's ability to be totally resistant to pests and disease. And the way it does that is, is it, it can only do that when it has access to the correct nutrition. So we have now a vision of creating a plant that's totally resistant to pests and disease. And only then, when you have this healthy plant, can you have the potential to create total health moving up through the food chain. So it's going to go from plant to animal to human or plant directly to human. And if we're eating plants that are not able to express total health, then you cannot expect total health in the animal or human that eats it. So you already reduced your chance of creating total health. And this lack of nutritional density, therefore, is going to have all sorts of consequences, not only just on our physical health of our physical bodies, but surely also on our mental health as well. Yeah. Yes. Well, <laughs> that's a lovely question. Um, and I can only, I, I'll do that in a roundabout way because I don't, you know, I'm not qualified to talk about what actually mental health issues are. Mm. But 
I believe, uh, and this comes back to my deep ecology and the difference between shallow ecology thinking and deep ecological thinking, the current model that we're all subscribed to is a shallow way of relating to nature. In fact, I think it's quite easy for most people to understand humans think we can control natural processes, for example, growing food, that we can just throw a load of fertilizers out and increase yields. But we know, we know that that creates problems. So then pesticides are created, herbicides are created. And now we're moving into genetically modified foods to start altering the actual composition of the plant. And all these create a huge environmental impact that starts to destroy the health of the planet, stroke us. So all that's related to the way that we think. And if we're not thinking in tune with natural systems, we're therefore not participating in creating a world with a vision of total health. So that the outcome of that, so this is just in its very widest sense, the outcome of that means that if, we're not, if our thinking's not in line with the natural world, maybe that's a, a causal effect for creating mental, mental health issues in the population. I couldn't agree more, Matt. Absolutely beautifully said. Thank you. So before we wrap this episode up, I always like to ask our guests one final very open-ended question, and that's, is there anything else that you'd like the listeners to know about? Matt, would you like to go first? Um, Fred Provenza, a professor at, I think it's Iowa University in America, has spent 30 years studying animal feeding behavior and post-ingestive feedback. So the question he's asking is, how do animals know how to self-medicate? So through 30 years of robust studies, uh, he reached a point of understanding that what was going on is the nutrients contained within the food, of which there are potentially thousands, and we're into now the discrete secondary nutrients, those secondary metabolites. They were communicating directly with the gut microbiome. So the composition of the plant, those nutrients within it, were speaking directly to the nutrient, uh, to the microbiome in the gut. And nine out of 10 neurons to do with food choices emanate from the gut. They flow up through the vagus nerve and into the brain. And it can control what the brain what the brain thinks in relation to food choices. So here we've got a fascinating concept that's come from the study of animal feeding behavior, where the food is controlling how we think. And we might be able to apply that thought to humans as well, because we are, after all, all biological organisms and follow the same principles of, of ecology and nature. So it's an interesting thought that maybe the quality of the food is also affecting directly how we think. It only makes sense. You are what you eat, as they say. Yeah. Like it's literally true. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I'm, I'm sorry, just another linkage there is that the quality of those nutrients in that plant, we believe are dictated by the microbes in the soil and that relationship between microbe and plant. So if you've depleted the health of that soil strokes the microbiome in that soil. What you get in the plant is a disfigured or a dysfunctional composition of nutrients. So really what that, 
what I see in this picture is the microbes in the soil communicating directly with the microbes in the gut via the chemistry, the nutrients that are in the food. Hmm. That's a very interesting way of putting it. Yeah, good. Maybe that's my final closing thought. Yeah, that's great. Yeah, what yeah, what I would like to highlight is the need this is at a global level to really link agriculture agricultural systems to healthcare systems so that growers and farmers are starting to consider well what are the health benefits of the crops I'm growing and how can that contribute to citizen health and equally for healthcare systems to actually start looking at agricultural systems and the quality of food as a mechanism for reversing or ideally preventing disease. And as I mentioned right at the outset, these diet-related non-communicable diseases that are just increasing at an exponential rate globally. So it's really understanding food as medicine, and that's what Griffin um, Bring Real Food for Nutrition wants to contribute to. There's a, there's a concept that has been adopted recently called health-orientated agriculture. So it's really looking at agriculture through a nutrition or health lens. And that can be enacted very simply just by thinking, well, in terms of my seed selection, you know, am I going to be using heritage varieties, traditional varieties, because the research is showing that they're actually sort of higher in antioxidant and polyphenol levels. There also might be something in perennial vegetables as well. So again, mm -hmm. it's this, am I you know, really maximizing the health benefits by selecting the seeds that can, can help that process? Just want to flag up a really interesting YouTube video for the listeners, um, it's from the Biodynamic Association annual conference in 2019. And the keynote speaker was Jens Otto Anderson, who did a talk on um, vitality from soil to stomach. And in that, he you know, talks about this study that was done looking at the power of food as medicine. In this, it was in relation to type 2 diabetes, where the three groups of Patients with type 2 diabetes had three different diets followed for, the, for three months. So it's three separate interventions. And one was just diet as normal. One, they introduced um, 500 grams of two types of vegetables that were like modern varieties. So probably like hybrid seeds. And the third group, it was similar, um, added 500 grams of two types of vegetables, which were traditional heritage varieties. And so after three months, they compared, you know, what was going on in terms of the type 2 diabetes. So the first group, no difference at all. The second group, um, it was about 30% had shown improvements to some degree. And in the third group, who were eating the traditional varieties, so that 70% had reversed their disease. So they didn't have type 2 diabetes anymore. I mean, that is absolutely incredible. Wow. And that just shows the, the potential of food as medicine. And if we're all growing nutrient-dense food, so growing real food for nutrition, we can potentially, you know, change the way things are going, 
reverse people's diseases, stop having to buy into um, big ag, big food, big pharmaceutical, which is the one that is just benefiting from all this, really empower people to um, improve their health, to keep themselves healthy just through their selection, their choices of food and, and selecting food, which is the most nutrient dense, you know, packed full of vitamins and minerals from healthy soils. And um, so not only eating healthier food, but by choosing food that is nutrient dense, you are then helping to sequester carbon, increase biodiversity, improve soil structure. There'll be less flooding, less toxic chemical runoff into watercourses. So effectively, by choosing that nutrient dense carrot, you are, yeah, potentially helping to revert the climate emergency. So it's, it's really powerful. So I'll have links in the show notes to where our listeners can donate to Griffin, Growing Real Food for Nutrition. And I'll also have links to your social media handles as well. Would you like to give a bit of a shout out for what your social media handles are? Yeah, we've got um, Twitter. Um, so that's at G-R-F-F-N underscore C-I-C. So that's Griffin. Yeah, we're building our followers on on uh, Twitter. So it seems to be more people are becoming aware of us. So it'd be great if more people would like to follow. And uh, we've got a website. So that's www.grffn.org. And when you get on the home page, please sign up for our mailing list and then we can keep you informed. We've just brought out a new newsletter um, and that can be posted up there um, at some point soon. But the idea is if you join the mailing list, um, then that would be um, fabulous. So I hope to see more people um, following and joining our journey in different ways. Absolutely. Thanks so much for coming on the show, guys. What a great episode. You're welcome. It's a pleasure, Daniel. Yeah, thank you so much, Daniel, for inviting us. So it turns out that according to the research discussed in this episode, a carrot is not a carrot. It seems like permaculture and agroecological practices are increasing the abundance of health benefits within plant material. If you'd like to learn more about growing real food for nutrition, you can type grffn org into your browser or check the links in this episode's show notes we have a number of episodes in our back catalog that you might also enjoy including episode 30 intro to organic gardening episode 31 permaculture's 12 principles and episode 35 monocrop pros and cons please do make sure that you're listening to episodes in our back catalog and also listening to some of the more complex topics more than once so that you can really squeeze the most juice out of this podcast as you possibly can We consistently receive feedback that you guys are picking up new nuggets on each listen, 